Hello, and welcome to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Thank you for joining us for this in-depth study of God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources or to read her blog, visit her website at intheword.com. And now, Michelle. In Romans 13, if you remember, Paul clearly revealed that earthly government is something that's been established by God himself to bring order to society. If we are to claim the benefits of being a citizen of the state, then we must also obey by the state's laws in order to keep our conscience clear before God and also to be a good ambassador for Christ in the community in which we live. There are, however, circumstances when obedience to earthly authorities might mean breaking the commands of God. And in such cases, the Christian is always to obey God rather than men. Of course, that may result in hardship, but we should bear it willingly if need be. William Tyndale was a man who did just that. In an age when it was illegal to translate the Bible into English, Tyndale chose to disobey the authorities in order to make God's word available to the English people in their own language. Accused of heresy, he was arrested and burned alive at the stake on October the 6th, 1536, at the age of just 42. It's hard to imagine the world today without an English Bible, and yet it would not exist without the courage of William Tyndale, who chose to listen to God rather than men. Though a Christian may indeed be called to make a stand for God's truth against those who are opposed to him, we are in all other ways to be law-abiding citizens with integrity, living in society as those who would bring honor to God's name. Paul then goes on in Romans 13 to illustrate what that looks like. He instructs in verse 8, Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. The commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and whatever other command there may be, are summed up in this one rule, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to its neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. The law of God given to Moses was a comprehensive set of rules that encompassed both moral behavior and the ceremonies for acknowledging God's holiness and approaching him in worship. The ceremonial laws of sacrifice and atonement were fulfilled by Christ on the cross, but the moral law, consisting of the Ten Commandments, is still in effect for believers. In Matthew 22, Jesus declared that all of God's moral law can be summed up in two commandments. You shall love the Lord your God with your heart, with your soul and with your mind. And also you shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
Paul understood that love really is the fulfillment of the law. In other words, if we truly love God and our fellow man, we will be living out what the moral law commands. Though in God's sight all our debts have been cancelled, we do have a continuing responsibility to love others as God has loved us. Paul says that if people honestly seek to fulfill this ongoing debt of loving others, then they will automatically keep God's actual commandments. They will not commit adultery or murder, knowing the destruction those things bring to the hearts and lives of others. Nor will they covet or steal, for true love is always more concerned with giving than it is with getting. If a person's whole life is dominated by the love of God and love for other people, they will need no other law, for love will prevent them from transgressing God's commands. Paul then introduces a note of urgency in verse 11, saying, And do this understanding the present time. The hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber, because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Like many others in the early church, Paul looked forward to the soon return of Christ and was troubled by how little time he had left to reach others with the gospel. He warned Christians everywhere to wake up, to be alert, as the time of Christ's return will soon be here. Those who question why Christ has not yet returned would do well to remember Peter's explanation in 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 9 that the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness instead he is patient with us not wanting anyone to perish but everyone to come to repentance unfortunately The fact that God in his mercy has delayed that final day of judgment has lulled many Christians into a type of complacency. But the truth is, no matter how much time remains until the Lord's return, it surely is less time than when we first believed. Those who follow Christ are to live with a sense of urgency with regards the spread of the gospel, for this dark age is almost over and the day of Christ's return is almost here. Consequently, Paul urges us to put aside the deeds of darkness and instead put on the armor of light. Notice Paul encourages us to actively put aside the deeds associated with darkness in rather the same way that one would choose to put off an old set of dirty clothes in favor of something new and clean.
We can be clothed in God's armor, but we need to be willing to put off the garments of our old life to do it. And Paul then goes on to name six sins that are particularly associated with a life that is far from Christ that must be put off. The first immoral act Paul speaks of is orgies, which is sometimes translated as revelry. When Paul used it, this word had come to mean a band of partiers noisily making their way through the street at night. At the time Paul wrote this letter, Water was not very clean and people often mixed wine with water to purify it. However, even so, drunkenness was frowned upon and it was a vice that was condemned by all respectable people, not just Christians alone. Paul knew that Drunkenness or intoxication can often lead to sexual immorality and he warned against those who took pleasure wherever they could find it. He knew that led to debauchery, in other words, to depravity and shamelessness. And you know, it's true, some people do seem to lose their sense of shame the more they practice sin and they're even willing to sin publicly these days. Not only that, the life that is far from Christ is often caught up in dissension, in disagreements and conflict that arise from an unholy sense of competition. This sin, with its desire for power and prestige, places self above every thought of Christian love and cooperation. This type of person looks with jealousy on every blessing other people have, envying every ability and gift. This is not the way that Christians are to live. Rather, we are to choose to put on the character of Christ, not thinking about how we can gratify the desires of the sinful nature. I love the way Paul speaks of this way of life as if it was a set of clothes that have to be taken off so that we can be clothed in Christ. Because I think that helps us to understand that our will and our own actions are necessary to see this change accomplished. The fact that he uses the word armor to describe being clothed with Christ, which is of course the clothes of a soldier or a warrior, really indicates that it may involve some real struggle on our part to accomplish this. As Paul moves towards the end of his letter, he wants to confront issues that were causing divisions within the church at Rome. If you recall, at the beginning of our study of this book, I pointed out the fact that there was apparently some conflict between the Jewish and the Gentile Christ followers in that city. The Jews struggled to leave behind their old food laws and the observance of the Sabbath, while the Gentile believers saw no real need to worry about those things. 
Paul wanted to assure the church that these different practices did not define who belongs to Christ and who doesn't, and that people can differ over certain non-essential practices within Christianity, because their differing opinions were not about any key aspect of what we believe as Christians. Paul urged them to respect each other's point of view in order to maintain unity in the body of Christ. In chapter 14, verse 1, he says, Accept him whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters. One man's faith allows him to eat anything, but another man whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The man who eats everything must not look down on him who does not, and the man who does not eat everything must not condemn the man who does, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. The key point here that Paul is addressing is what he calls the disputable matters of our faith. In other words, he's speaking of the small differences in how people worship the Lord. There are certain matters of faith which cannot be argued about. For example, all Christians hold to the truth that the only way for a person to be saved is by faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus himself declared in John 14 verse 6, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In Acts 4, Peter and John, speaking of Jesus, told the Jewish religious leaders that salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. The fact that belief in Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection is essential to salvation is irrefutable. It is fundamental to our faith. However, there may be other ideas concerning Christian life where it is permissible for people to have differing opinions. And the first example that Paul addresses is different opinions about what Christians were allowed to eat. Jesus had already said in Matthew 15 that the foods we put into our mouths do not make us unclean. Rather, it's what comes out of our mouths that makes us so because our words often reveal the true state of our hearts. The Gentile Christians were comfortable eating any food that was available in the city's markets, even the meat that came from animals that had been strangled. This so offended the Jewish Christ followers that they determined to eat only vegetables. Paul tells us that it is important for each believer to heed their own conscience in their walk with the Lord, as we each must give an account to him for how we live. However, that doesn't mean that everyone has to see things exactly the same way that we do. 
Interestingly, Paul refers to those who were more restrictive than the others in what they ate as being those whose faith was weak. Why would he describe them in that way? Well, Paul believed that they were overly focused on rules and regulations of the Old Testament because they had not yet discovered the true meaning of their freedom in Christ and all that it means. They had not yet realized that their works could not save them. Paul urges the Christ followers who didn't share that perspective not to look down on those who were still trapped by it. They weren't to think of them as being superstitious or ignorant. And he encourages those who follow the Lord in a stricter manner not to judge or condemn those who were focused on the freedom that grace brings. After all, who are we to judge someone else's servant? It's worth pointing out here, though, that Paul was talking to a group of believers in this letter, all of whom already served Christ. And he reminds us that each one of us will have to stand before the Lord and give an account of our actions as we trusted in God and obeyed the Holy Spirit speaking to us through our conscience. As Paul makes clear in this passage, we are to accept other believers without complaint or irritation and without trying to change their minds as long as what is at issue is a disputable matter and not a matter of real sin. Another thing that caused arguments among the believers in Rome concerned on which day of the week God was to be worshipped. Those from a Jewish background thought it better to hold to their Sabbath as being the right day for worship, while those of Gentile origin with no such heritage or custom leaned more towards worshipping on a Sunday because that was the day on which Christ rose from the dead. We know that Paul did not hold to one day of the week being more sacred than another because of what he said to the church in Galatians 4.10. He said that the Galatians were observing special days and months and seasons of the year and that he feared that they had apparently missed the point of his teaching. Likewise, he wrote in Colossians 2 verses 16 to 17, warning those believers not to let anyone judge them by what they ate or drank, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day, saying that all these things were really a shadow of the things that were to come, the reality, however, being found in Christ. Paul did not want people worshipping any particular day. Rather, he wanted them worshipping the God who was Lord of every day of the week. Paul continues in verse 5, One man considers one day more sacred than another. Another man considers every day alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. He who regards one day as special, does so to the Lord. He who eats meat, 
eats to the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself alone, and none of us dies to himself alone. If we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. Paul worried that people were allowing disagreements about non-essential issues to divide their unity. He pointed out that differences in those things really didn't matter, as long as people's hearts were set upon glorifying the Lord. What really matters is the intentions of the heart, and that each person is fully convinced in their own mind about what God is prompting them to do. For example, I read about a certain Scottish missionary by the name of Mary Slessor, who spent three years alone in the bush of Nigeria in the late part of the 1800s. Without a calendar, Mary frequently got the days mixed up, and at times she could be found working on a Sunday and holding her church services on a Monday. No one would say that her church services were any less valid on the days that she mixed up, nor would anyone say that she was disappointing God on the days that she happened to work on a Sunday. What truly mattered was her heart and the fact that in everything she did, she sought to honour God. Christ came not only to unite us with God, but also to unite us with one another. However, the unity we have in Christ does not mean uniformity in these non-essential things. In other words, it's okay for there to be differences of conscience in how we live our lives for God. Paul gave room for us to live by our individual convictions while understanding that others in the church should be allowed to live by theirs also. He reminds his readers in verse 10, You then, why do you judge your brother? Or why do you look down on your brother? For we all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, As surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Quoting here from Isaiah 45.23, Paul reminds us all are answerable to God for their actions, for he alone is judge in the end. God not only sees what we do, he understands the motives behind our actions. And no matter who we are, Jew and Gentile alike, we will all depend on Jesus Christ to speak in our defense on that final day of judgment. And if we must cast ourselves on his grace, what right do we have to judge or to look down on another Christian brother or sister? In light of that, Paul urges in verse 13, Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in your brother's way. 
As one who is in the Lord Jesus, I am convinced that no food is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for him it is unclean. If your brother is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not, by your eating, destroy your brother for whom Christ died. Do not allow what you consider good to be spoken of as evil. Instead of speaking ill of our brothers and sisters, instead of writing them off, we should look to our own lives and our own witness. We need to make up our mind not to intentionally put any stumbling block or obstacle in another Christian's way. Paul illustrates this principle from his own life, stating that though he, being strong in faith, saw no real problem in eating all kinds of food, if those he was with had a narrower outlook, if they might be shocked or offended by him eating something that they believed was unclean, then he would not eat it. To him, It was more important that he not cause distress. He was not willing to destroy his brother in that way, for he would not be acting out of love if he disregarded a fellow believer's sincerely held but differing convictions. As believers, we are not to think about how things affect us only. We are to think about how they might affect others in the family of God. Notice Paul is not saying that we are to be people pleasers, and he's not saying that we are to compromise our principles, but he is saying in matters that are neutral or indifferent, in things that are neither good nor bad, we should not cause offense to those who are weaker in faith or more sensitive in conscience. Food issues were a good example of that. Paul believed that those who limited what they ate did so unnecessarily. However, they limited their diet out of a heart that wanted to please God. And that was the main thing. Satan seeks to divide us over unimportant things. And many church groups fall into this trap dividing over issues that should never be allowed to destroy their relationships. You know, I once heard of a church congregation that willingly split over the color of paint that the pastor wanted to put on a wall of the church. There are many such non-essential issues that should never bring division. And so Paul, still using his illustration about food as an example, declares in verse 19, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and approved by men. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it is wrong for a man to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything else that will cause your brother to fall. So, Whatever you believe about these things, 
keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the man who does not condemn himself by what he approves. And the man who has doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith, and everything that does not come from faith is sin. Christianity is not about our individual freedoms as much as it is about our mutual responsibilities. We are to live lives full of righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. We are to act rightly towards others. We belong to God and so consider others' needs above our own. Paul also urges that because we have peace with God, we are to seek peace with one another, especially where the things that we disagree on are non-essential issues. The Christian life is to be marked by joy in the Holy Spirit. But you know, happiness that causes someone else distress often ends in sorrow eventually. Jesus told us in Matthew seven twelve. So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. And when we treat others in this way, we find great joy in knowing that God is pleased with us, whether men like us or not. Paul urges us to make every effort to do what leads to peace within the body of Christ seeking not only to grow in faith ourselves, but to build and encourage others up as well. In other words, it's more loving for us to limit ourselves and not insist on having our own way, if doing so would cause a brother or sister to imitate our behavior, thus going against their own conscience and stumbling in their own walk with the Lord. The world like Cain, will tell you, I am not my brother's keeper. But those who follow Jesus Christ cannot say that. We have a mutual responsibility for our brothers and sisters in the family of God. And we are not to destroy the Lord's work in another's life for the sake of our own freedoms. We need to remember the old saying that in essentials, there must be unity. In non-essentials, there can be liberty. But in all things, there must be charity. In other words, there must be love. God bless you. Thank you for listening to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Join us next week as we continue our study from God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources, visit her website at intheword.com.